I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. Never been in trouble, and here I am, got a life bid, and I'm like, I don't know when I'm ever going to get out of here. And I didn't have the death penalty good thing because they probably would have executed me. I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's episode features two extraordinary people. Steve Fishman, the journalist who was the host of Empire on Blood, which played a role in the ultimate reversal of the conviction of our other guest, who was in prison for over two decades for a double murder he didn't commit, and that's Calvin Buari. Calvin Buari was convicted of a double homicide in 1995, but maintained he was innocent for more than two decades. He was released last year after his conviction was overturned, but prosecutors threatened to retry the case until last week. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. And Calvin, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jason. Let's get right into the story because your story has more twists and turns than a Hollywood uh, <laughs> movie, I would say. Let's go back to the beginning, Calvin. Where did you yes. grow up? Um, I grew up in the Bronx. I grew up at 922 East 211th Street in the northeast section of the Bronx, Wakefield area. And what was that like? What was your childhood like? Did you have brothers, sisters? Were your parents at home? Was it uh, a tough neighborhood? What was the situation growing up? Um... That's where I was born, but I was moving around. Where was that? At one time, I was staying in Brooklyn in the Brownsville area. You know, um, it's very rough, especially in the 70s at that time. I was a baby when I was in the Bronx, but I came back to the Bronx because that's where my grandmother lived, and my mother ended up moving back with her mother. Your dad wasn't around? No, my dad wasn't around. He left me when I was about, I think, three or four years old. And what about brothers and sisters? I have one brother, one younger brother who's a year younger than me. His name is Abdul Buari. That's just a brother on my mother's side. I have a, a whole lot of other siblings on my father's side as well that I just recently started getting in contact with. Got it. Okay. Right. So you grew up in well, difficult circumstances, right? Dodging, dodging trouble right. um, and ultimately getting into getting into trouble, right? but not the trouble that you were convicted of, right? No, absolutely not. And that's part of the crazy story. So you were known as a fixture in the drug trade at the time that this went on, right? Yes. And you were in the crosshairs of the police as a result of the fact that you were a known dealer. Yes. And can you just give us a, a quick overview of what your life was like when you were in the game in the Bronx back then? <laughs> I mean, uh, when I was in the game, I could say I was on top of my game. <laughs> uh, my lifestyle was good. I had money, and I was doing well, you know, so I don't know what else I could say about that. Well, I mean, I could add a little, a li yeah, a little a few details. I, mm -hmm. Cal, <laughs> Cal sometimes likes to talk about him, but, you know, that's not who he is now, so right. I understand a little a little shyness about it. But Cal, is, he once told me he was living the life, and... We think of people imitating rap stars now, but rap stars back then were imitating people like Cal. So he had a couple of mink coats. He had a matching mink hat. He um, had two what he called black man's wishes, which BMW, <laughs> the, car, the car that let people know that he made it. Right. And I think, yeah, that was part of the the great thrill of it, but yeah. in the end, that brought a lot of attention, attention to Cal, the wrong kind of attention. Right. 
I'm not judging one way or the other. I, I don't think anybody can unless they walk a mile in your shoes. That being said, how did this crazy situation unfold? You were convicted of a murder in 1992. So on that fateful night of September 10th, 1992, two brothers, Elijah and Saladin Harris, 24 and 25 years old, were murdered in cold blood as they sat in a car eating their food. And that's what started this whole chain of events that led to your wrongful conviction. Yes. Were you there at the time? I wasn't on the scene where the crime happened at. I was in the middle of the block. It was probably, what, like 500 or 1,000 feet away from where the incident actually took place when it had happened. But I was always in and around that area at all times. That was the block that I was known for selling drugs at. Just to set the scene, one of the things that's kind of incredible, Cal was a a drug distributor, a very good one. I mean, he's got immense entrepreneurial talents, which also served him well when he was in prison and managing his own case. But the thing that's incredible going back to the late 80s, early 90s, is that the cops target Cal, and they say it out loud. It's in the newspaper. We want Cal Buari. And they go so far as to say he's not only a murderer, we believe, a drug dealer who walks around flaunting his success, but he knows black magic. Yeah, that was like the biggest propaganda in the world. I think that only happened because they figured out that I had an African last name. And instead of me knowing this black magic, as they proclaimed, they were the ones that were really on the witch hunt. And they just wanted me by all means necessary. And one of the things that I learned later is this is the way that Alan Cameron, when he mentions how, you know, he utilized different tactics and angles. That was actually one of his biggest tools because what happened was when I went to trial, not only did he ambush me with surprise witnesses that me or my lawyer didn't know about who was coming in to wrongly accuse me, he also utilized the media. So now jurors were actually getting that article delivered in little flyers to their houses while I was on trial. Wow. You I know never heard saying? that one before. Yeah, yeah. I think there was even like a newsletter, a co-op newsletter that did this. And, you know, Alan Karen's the prosecutor. He works for the Bronx DA. He's got a big reputation. He comes in like they're throwing their heavy hitter at it because they want Cal. And, you know, Cal has in their minds... I think he's, you've been accused of uh, another murder, yes. and Cal keeps eluding them. And this kind of engenders this ferocity on their part to, let's get Cal. And that's something that I talk about a lot. You know, when they take this, talk about black magic like a witch hunt, they right. decide they're going to get Cal, right? Yes. That means now this double murder happens, they're like, how convenient, we'll pin this on you, but in the meantime, that means by definition that they're totally willing to ignore the actual killer or killers who are then going to be free to go do it again. But I want to go back a little bit because there you are, 500, 1,000 feet away, whatever, shots ring out. I mean, this was a very violent time, right? Was, yes, was there a, Were shootings a, a frequent thing in the neighborhood? I mean, in that era, murders were at an all-time high. New York, I think, at that time was the murder capital. You know, you had 2,000 and something murders a year. Looking back at that time and that age, you know, literally I knew that when I was in the lifestyle I was in, every day that I walked out my house, I knew I was putting my life on the line. But, you know, to me, it was a sacrifice because I felt like I had to be the man of, of my household because my father wasn't around and I was the oldest sibling and my mother lost a job and she was struggling. So even in a neighborhood where shootings were a regular occurrence, yes. this was a double murder of two brothers and you heard the shots. Did you go to the scene? And then how did it happen? When did the arrest happen? Mm -hmm. And when did you start to see that this was really going to be your undoing? Um... 
after that happened, I had immediately ran to the opposite end of the block, and I was with a friend of mine, John Paris. You know, may he rest in peace. He's not here today. And then when I walked back up to the block, we walked to his house because he had drugs on him, and we started seeing police come to the corner of the block. So we wanted to know what was going on because we just heard the shots go off. So once he had took what he had in the house, we walked up to the block, and that's when I found out that two guys had got murdered. Did you know those guys? No, I didn't. Were you arrested on the spot? or did? No, I wasn't. I was arrested six months later. I was arrested because Aldrich Griffin. He was one of the leaders of the Shower Posse, the Jamaican gang called the Shower Posse. And from the records that I had read, he had gotten locked up for an inoperable or a firearm, a weapon, and I think some drugs. He already wanted to get me off the block because he was also my competition across the street. So that's how I got arrested. He falsely accused me for killing the Harris brothers. And remember, I mean, this this block gets called eventually Corner on Blood, right on that corner. And, uh, you know, some years later, there's like seven, eight, nine shootings within a span of a month. So this becomes a a very, very hot block. Giuliani comes in. He wants to clean it up. Cal kind of falls into that, that profile in a big way. But when they first arrest him, I think it's March of 93. Right. So that's like six months after the actual executions. It's an aspirational arrest. I mean, they got one witness who may or may not hold up in court, but they want Cal off the street. So, hey, we're going to throw him in jail for as long as we can, and we're going to try and develop a case (laughs) while we're holding him. And they don't have a case. It, It takes them years. And the thing that comes out is that They're actually about to walk away from this case. They're completely bluffing. Mm -hmm. Cal mentions Alan Karen, the the prosecutor, Mm -hmm. and really, he tells me in the podcast, he had no case. He says, I was bluffing. I was going to take this as far as I could Mm -hmm. and then dismiss it. And then there's a twist and a turn that intervenes three years later. Right. I wanted to touch on that, too. I literally have to commend Steve because I think that he did a more thorough investigation than any prosecutor, than any lawyer that I ever had, than any detective that was ever on my case. And he talked to every single individual that had anything to do with my case. And, you know, with that bluff that he said, that was a violation of the Sixth Amendment to my speedy trial rights. He never had a case against me. They always knew that that guy initially was lying. When he got arrested, he immediately went back to Jamaica. He wasn't trying to cooperate with them. He just utilized me to get out of jail and possibly get back on the block to try to take over what I had going on out there. You understand? And the sad part about it is when you talk about Alan Karen, you talk about one of Robert Johnson's leading hitmen, like, so, so to speak. That Johnson's the district attorney in of the course. Bronx for... 25 years. Yeah. And with him, it's sad because I know that that man has a lot of individuals possibly in prison right now for cases they didn't commit. And with Robert Johnson, the reason why I brought him up is because under his tenure, the Bronx had the most Brady violation and prosecutorial misconduct violations than any other borough. And none of them ever has been chastised or punished for none of these acts. So when they get away with doing these things, they walk around as though they are above the law, like with impunity. They have no impunity. So it's just sad, you know. Rather than see justice done, Alan Cameron rather uphold the conviction. And that's who this man is. And it's just a lot of other people that I know that are in the situation that I am because when this guy took a set on you, he was going to go by all means to take you down, period. And he showed that clearly when he spoke to Steve. He has no impunity for that, you know? No, it's something that we talk about on Wrongful Conviction a lot, which is that until we are able to get rid of prosecutorial immunity, which is almost total— 
it's probably the only profession that enjoys that type of protection, right? Almost any job that you do, if you're a doctor and you mess up, you know, you're going down. I mean, it's like, and there's so many examples of that. But uh, they're able to get away with uh, just insane things. I mean, it's the most powerful position in the justice system. I think most people think that a judge has the ultimate authority, but we know, those of us who are in this business know that the prosecutor has so much power. They can drop charges whenever they want to for whatever reason they want to. They can throw the harshest penalties at you in 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 an attempt to uh, bluff, as you said, to get you to to cop a plea. Cal was offered a plea three years, three years, and he turned it down because he's innocent. And, you know, to your point about the prosecutors, one thing that happens is the system gives them legitimately, by law, enormous advantages. Now, imagine six witnesses come forward and testify against Cal, and they're, they're really drug dealers who have been in the scene or people who have committed crimes. And the prosecution is allowed to, encouraged to, hand out deals. Sure. And so there's actually a guy in prison, and they go to him and they say, how long you want to do, <laughs> right? Or you can testify against Cal. And by the way, this is a guy who's, who's very close to Cal. This all happens. It's a kind of intimate drama. It all happens within, most of it within a circle. But, but the, the second advantage, that, and this is what really shocked me, I think, when I looked at the, the transcript, you know, 1,100 pages thick, Cal had it sent to me. This is of a trial in 1995. As Cal alluded to, the prosecutor goes to the judge and says, Calvin Buari, Black magic, Calvin Buari, is so dangerous, we need an order of protection. The judge says, all right. You know, I mean, the judge isn't running this. It's the prosecution that's running this. He says, okay, I don't want to be on the front page of the New York Post if something happens. And so that means that Cal and his attorney cannot know who is going to testify against him until the witness walks to the stand. Now, I mean, imagine that kind of disadvantage. And that's legal. To your point, Jason, there's a kind of immunity, whether I don't think it's in the law, but it in practice, prosecutors are not held to account for their, let's give it the best, the best interpretation, their mistakes. Sometimes those mistakes are due to overzealousness, a refusal to look at the facts, and it doesn't have an impact on a career. So, you know, recidivism, that's what we're talking about, right? They are, in fact, immune in so many ways and almost totally immune. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... And you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone. And then there's no obligation to buy. 
The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. There's a couple things I want to highlight. One is that had they really believed that you murdered two people in cold blood there's no possibility they would have offered you three Three years years. that's ridiculous right that's just i mean that you have to you really have to suspend a lot of layers of disbelief in order to try to get yourself around that one and what you were talking about is a legal principle that was developed in england centuries ago which is called trial by ambush right (laughs) which was where they would not tell the defense anything that they were going to say or do or who they were going to bring in their their thought was that this way they would get to the truth because they would just use this surprise tactic that but of course it's (laughs) it's just patently unfair and now we have you know the brady decision from 1964 in which the supreme court said that prosecutors have a duty, an obligation to disclose exculpatory evidence to the That's defense, right. but they left it up to the prosecutors to decide what they consider <laughs> to be exculpatory. So they really, they had it right, and then they sort of pulled the rug out from under their own decision, mm-hmm. which left us in a situation where we see time and again, right. in New York State, it's common that they, sometimes they turn it over the day of the trial too, right? So right. it's like, oh, here's the stuff. And then what are you supposed to do? Like you, you, yeah. you can't, you can't, you, you can't, can't examine it, you can't investigate. You can't investigate, you can't do anything. It's absolutely what you said. It's a trial by ambush. I mean, and that's how I was ultimately sandbagged and convicted because if you're looking at the ambush and you're looking at the media that was brought up against me, then you have six individuals that say they know me and some of them I didn't know then you got a conviction. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence. And that's absolutely what happened to me. But I also think that Alan Karen, too, to touch more on that point that Steve brought up, he was actually promoted after all of that. He was Robert Johnson's ADA top dog in that office and he allowed him to do whatever he wanted to that's why he has that attitude that he has would you believe that out of four file folders three of those file folders went missing in my case completely so you know this is the new tactic that Alan Karen employed, he's not only going to turn over the exculpatory evidence he's going to make sure that the, any exculpatory evidence just disappears Period. So what do you do now when you have evidence that they have in their possession, they possibly always knew I didn't commit the crime, that you're going to never be able to get your hands on? There's also some type of justice reform that needs to be done with that. I think that there needs to be an open case file with the defense attorney and the prosecutor because they are both officers of the court. They share the same ethical duty. It shouldn't be a disadvantage where they have all the power. And then if you have anything that can support your position, you'll never get it. Yeah, you'll never know about it. And it is crazy. But the fact is that, as we all know, in a civil trial, everyone has to turn over everything. And all you're arguing about is money. In this case, they were arguing about your life. And that's, for some reason, that's not treated with the same level of respect by the justice system as money is, which just strikes me as Alice in Wonderland, like completely upside down and inside out. It doesn't make any damn sense. So back to you. Did you know, after you go through this trial, they have these witnesses, every one of which was an incentivized witness, right? Absolutely. And, you know, had every reason to lie. They didn't really care about you. In some cases, they wanted you convicted because, as as Robinson did, he wanted you off the street so he could have it to himself. So, I mean, he had multiple reasons. He was getting getting off, and he was going into a better business situation because his main competitor was going to be behind bars. So when the jury went out, did you think you had a snowball's chance in hell of being vindicated? I mean, truthfully, 
I put my faith in God, and at that time, I'm taking myself back to that time. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that, you know, everything was stacked against me. Everything, like, everything. Let me just add to that, because Dwight Robinson, he's a key, key character. He's a guy who, he idolized Cal. He's uh, four years younger. He admires Cal, and then... For whatever internal dynamics, he feels spurned, he's hurt. He's also, at the same time, really ambitious. And that results in an attempted murder of Cal. So Dwight Robinson emerges as the central witness. He organizes the prosecution. The prosecutor uses the word, to me, he says, Dwight Robinson was a gift. Dwight is bringing people into the prosecutor's office in the back of police cruisers. So he is not only an arm of the prosecution, he's like a lieutenant Mm -hmm. of the prosecution. They can't do it without him. He has just, I think, three months prior tried to murder Cal. (laughs) No, it was three weeks prior. Three weeks prior, in in a hail of bullets in an ambush, right? Mm -hmm. And that information... It's kept from the jury in this sense. It's brought up. (laughs) Dwight denies it on the stand. At the same time, according to Dwight, and Dwight spent a lot of time talking to me, according to Dwight, it's common knowledge among the prosecution, certainly among the cops, the detectives. And at one point I said to Dwight, I said, were you surprised that they let you commit perjury on the stand? And he said, nah, nah. I understood the game. It's dirty all around. You tell the truth, you're going to lose every time. That may be the most chilling thing that I heard. You know, that kind of organization, that kind of organizing of the prosecution. In fact, that kind of, by Dwight Robinson, that kind of utilizing of the prosecution, becoming this collaborator of the prosecution. And I think Cal used the phrase, Trying to kill Cal by other means. Mm-hmm. He failed with bullets. Yeah. So now he, he teams up with the prosecution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, Dwight admits that. He says, yeah, I wanted to get Cal off the street and I mm-hmm. saw this opportunity. Uh, so Cal has to spend the next two decades of his life proving that Dwight Robinson, this guy who once idolized him, is a liar. And that's, I mean, that's a drama that shouldn't be imposed on anybody, but it is an amazing drama to follow. And let's get to that, because that's one of the more interesting aspects of this case, I think, is that you end up being convicted. Yes. You were sentenced to... 50 years of life. 50 to life, right. So that's pretty much game over. Yes. Um, But you didn't give up. It would have been pretty easy to give up at that point. You know, I mean, you have now seen the justice system at its worst... Yes. And you know what they're capable of. You know that they're they're hiding stuff. They're they're bringing on witnesses the that most, are cooperating with incentives to lie. With the, and the most nefarious characters they're bringing onto the stand, yes. like Robinson, right? Who they yes. knew was a bad guy, right? They but they didn't that. care. They didn't so care. you know what they're capable of. You know how steep of a hill you've got to climb now because it just got a hundred times harder because now you're behind bars and you're looking at 50 to life. And then things get really interesting all of a sudden when you get a letter in the mail, right? Um, Yeah, I received it from Dwight Robinson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eight years after his conviction. And where were you serving at this point? I was in upstate correctional facility at that time. Maximum security? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, when he wrote me, he started explaining, like, I seen the remorse in him because, you know, one of the things that all jumped out with me is the fact that he started saying, you know, Cal, I'm on the inside looking out now. You know, I know your hand didn't call for this. And, you know, I started to sense some type of remorse, you know, and it started from there. So, wait, he was in prison writing to you? Yes. He had been convicted of a different murder yeah. under very... Remarkably similar, similar circumstances. circumstances. But so Dwight's doing 25 to life. Right. Yeah. And then and let's just point out for a second that that murder didn't ever really have to happen. If they would have just arrested <laughs> him when they should have in the first place, he wouldn't Absolutely. have been free to go kill whoever it was that he killed. Absolutely. But okay, so let's, let's just put that on the side for a second, right? right? So you're here in this maximum security prison. First of all, mm. is it as bad as it sounds? I mean, yes. I mean, especially at that time in that era. 
it was a whole lot of, I mean, if you look at Rikers Island in upstate in the early 90s, that's when they started to have the most cuttings, stabbings, and all that type of stuff. So, I mean, jail is just not a place for nobody to me. I always wondered, Cal, you know, you're sentenced to 50 years to life mm-hmm. for crimes you didn't do. I mean, you have to be angry and I mean, destroyed. I, I, I was, and I think that I had misdirected anger in the beginning, and that's what allowed me to end up in the box, but also being afraid, you know what I'm saying? I was in an environment that I felt like, you couldn't show no weakness, and if you did, I seen individuals getting raped, stabbed, and all type of stuff too. So that's what kind of like I, I had misdirected anger. So you know, I was doing what the Romans do while in Rome. You know. Yeah, I mean, you had almost nothing to lose. You, they could throw you in the prison within the prison, which is the box, right? right. But other than that, you're going to spend the rest of your life in there anyway. Right. So, so how did you turn that around? Because obviously you found a different gear, right? Had you already gone through that shift when this letter arrived in the mail? Because that's a big moment when that letter gets there, right? Yeah, I, I had already went through the shift at that, that point. I'm an introvert, so naturally the box was kind of like a good place for me. You know what I'm saying? Not only was I all right with myself, that I noticed that a lot of other individuals, they couldn't live with themselves inside of prison. And that's why a lot of people do a lot of things that they do. They want to stay on the gate. They want to get high. They want to get into fights. Because, you know, I do. I don't mind as a devil's playground. So that's what I kind of grew at. When I was in solitary confinement, this book by James Allen called As a Man Thinketh. I read that book. It was a simplistic book to me. However, it kind of like related to me so well because it made me look at the glass half full instead of half empty, you know, and it allowed me to even look at in, in, in messed up situations, the good out of it. Even though I have 50 years of life, I knew a lot of individuals that were in the grave and I still felt like I was alive. So I'm blessed regardless. And, and that's the mindset that I got into once I read that book. And once I started with that positive energy, that's what really gave me the sense of fight because at a time I started to beat myself up to the point of saying, you know, I was a drug dealer. Maybe I belong in jail because in the beginning, that's what I was telling myself. You know, I never got locked up for selling drugs. So maybe this was a recompense for my actions. And once I got into the positive mind frame, it made me throw that away and say, you know, I'm in here for something I didn't do. If I was here for drugs, it'll be all right. I did the crime. I do the time. But I'm in here for a double homicide I did not commit. And I just started getting into the the books, the legal books, started reading up on I started contacting a lot of attorneys, a lot of investigators. The Innocent Project was one of the main ones. I was in correspondence with Barry Sheck, Vanessa Pakin, Nina Morrison, and a couple of others in the Innocent Project office. But at the time, even though they were corresponding with me, they were not taking cases that did not have DNA evidence at the time. So, you know, they were leading me to other law firms that were taking pro bono cases that dealt with wrongful convictions that did not have DNA evidence. At that point, is like the gears shifted for me. And once I started to dig into my case, I'm a very determined and resilient person. Once I put my mind to something, I won't stop until I feel like I'm going to get it done. I'm not going to hear no for an answer. And I'm going to keep pushing until I can't push no more. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. 
Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. I met Cal after he found that book, and that's a, a book that came out in like 1903, something, and it's by a British guy. It's not a Cal's world, but it, if you read it, what it says essentially is you can create your own reality by controlling your thoughts. And Cal, probably the most disciplined person I've ever met in terms of thinking positive, and, and he had enormous setbacks. It is not only does he get that letter, but... <laughs> Now, imagine Dwight is in one prison, Cal is in another prison, and they are suddenly put together. Mm. They suddenly come together at which? Um, Clinton Correctional Facility. Clinton Correctional Institution, and they meet in the yard. So (laughs) there's this guy (laughs) who has maybe has been put away for something. And then there's this other guy who says, you know, I testified you and I shouldn't have. Mm. And I mean, Tell about that meeting. Um, what made me more comfortable is the fact that I received that letter that he confessed to the crime right before I actually met him. Because I don't think that I possibly would have went to the yard to meet him when he wanted to meet me. But I have received the confession letter and I seen him in the mess hall and um, he told me to come to the yard. And... I really wanted to hear what he had to say outside of the fact that he was now saying that, you know, he committed the crime. And when I talked to him, I felt contrition. He started crying and he said the same thing. I'm going to start looking out. I want to do the right thing to get you out because you ain't here for something you ain't do. And we just started talking and I just wanted to get certain answers from him on why he did what he did. And, you know, that's what we talked about. I mean, so if you can imagine, Dwight actually confesses to a double murder that Cal's convicted for in this prison yard. And then what happens is, on the basis of that, on the strength of that, Cal actually gets a 440 hearing. So now he's back in court, and there's somebody else who's confessed this crime. I mean, Cal has to believe he's going home. Yeah. Um, except that um, Frank Vigiano and Detective John Wall, they were very ambitious for the DA and they were not going to allow that to happen <laughs> because, like I said, there was a witch hunt out for me and Alan Cameron was at the driving seat of that vehicle and um, they worked overtime to make sure that Dwight Robinson took back that confession. Right, which is another crazy aspect of this case because you probably were thinking, well, okay, that's where this thing's yeah. winding down. Now you got a written confession. Right. He confessed to you verbally, mm-hmm. in writing, and he's coming to court. To the lawyer. And that should be it. Statement. And this was, this was 2003, right? Yes. Yeah, so 2003, you've been in for 10 years already, maybe 11, yes. and you're going to court. And did you think when you went to court for that hearing that you were going home? Yes, I really did, you know. um, I mean, it sounded like it to me. Yeah. The next best thing to DNA is a confession. You understand? And that's what I thought until he came in and, you know, he got on the stand and he started doing what he do best, started lying. So So you didn't know until he got on the stand that he was going to take back his confession? I think we did find out that he did take it back, but... To me, when I said I seen him and how I felt with the meeting when I met him, I didn't. I, I felt like probably the DA or the detectives were pressuring him like they did, but I felt like still he'll probably come to court and tell the truth. You understand? But um, he didn't. It's it's a remarkable plot twist, and then your case falls apart, right? I mean, he yeah. he recants his recantation, right? Mm-hmm. So he's reversed himself again. Now his credibility's really out the window, right? Because it's yes. hard to tell when somebody's lying when they're when you right. you know when they keep changing their story. 
I assume that they switched him to a different prison at this point. Did you have to go back to the same prison together after this? No. Before um, we even went to court, he had left the facility that we were at. I think Mm, immediately after the the confession, he left. And you know what's so funny about that? I don't know, man, but it just seemed like a conspiracy too because that naturally doesn't happen where they put individuals that testify against you with the guy, you know, that type of stuff. It just seemed kind of funny that they did that you know like they really wanted me to really bury myself even further you know i think about that all the time Uh, these dirty tricks are just uh, they they, i just don't i really don't understand as we skip ahead there were other recantations there were twists and turns then 2015 comes two decades have passed even behind bars and now things finally take a turn for the better. You've had Steve, who's here with us now, who's been investigating your case mm-hmm. diligently, Diligent. uh, fighting for you. You have the Innocence Project mm-hmm. uh, helping you. Mm-hmm. You have pro bono attorneys who have taken your case. Myron Beldock, the greatest lawyer on the planet Earth that ever walked this planet Earth. Right. Yeah, his, his name is Gold. So you got Myron. I mean, you went from having the odds really stacked against you. And, and, okay. and it's a credit to you, by the way, because yeah. it would have been really easy for you to just fold. <laughs> but instead, somehow or other, from inside this darkest place, yeah. you managed to enlist literally the dream team yes. behind you. Absolutely. So 2015 comes. What happens? Um I had the investigator working on the case, and he actually was able to get some new leads. And once the new leads came out with the two sisters that were actually like about 10 to 15 feet away from the crime when it happened, they lived right where the crime happened at, and they actually seen Dwight do the crime. There's a plot twist. Yes. I mean, and we've seen that again and again, too, where the witness is the actual killer. And there's That's, an incentive to, to lie, right? Once once I got that information, um, I think I was in touch with Martin Tankliff at the time. I was also in contact with Jabal Collins, who was working for Joe Rudin. I really wanted Joe Rudin as my attorney at the time. But um, I I wrote Myron Beldock, the great Myron Beldock, you know, who actually represented Hurricane Carter and a whole lot of other people. And when I wrote to him, he gave me his number so I could call him and talk to him. And from the initial start, man, I just loved this guy. He treated me like family. He showed that I mattered. And I don't think that at that point, I never had an older male figure in my life that actually genuinely was, you know, acted concerned for me or my well-being. And he was actually going for a surgery at the time, and he didn't even know if he was would have been able to take the case. And it was so funny that, you know, I initially wanted Joe Rudin so bad, but, you know, Joe Rudin wanted his money. You know, he didn't care about nothing, no innocence or any of that. He wanted his money. But the funny thing was Myron had told me that if I take the case, if you could get somebody to assist me, then I'll feel better because I'm getting ready to go through the surgery. So I contacted Joel at that time, and once I, once he found out that Myron Beldock was on the case, he was willing to jump on board now. So that was kind of ironic. That's the first time that he ever stayed on the phone with me for an hour, you know? And um, actually, Myron started to get better he started to heal better. And once I told him that, you know, Joe Rudin would be willing to co-counsel with him, he said, don't worry about it. We don't need him no more. I'll be all right. I got I got it. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's how Myron was. And I had right after the surgery, and it was very touching for me, I had called him in the office. I don't know, it was like 8 p.m. And I thought he would have been home recuperating, healing up. Myron was still in the office working. And here it is, this man, he's almost 80 years old. And, you know, that meant a lot to me because I never had an attorney to that point that I felt like was giving my case their all. You understand? Here it is. I had the best of the best when it came to attorney. And I'm calling him now and he's on my case. You understand? And he should have been home recuperating. I just never met a guy like that, you know? Amazing guy. You know, I spent a little time with Myron. Cal actually never met Myron. Didn't have that good fortune. But Myron, 
I don't think it's too much to say. He came off his deathbed to really represent Cal. He had yeah. prostate cancer. He had heart problems. He, when I met him, he had a tumor behind his eye. Yeah. So his left eye actually bulged. He'd mm. look at you, but that left eye kind of veered off to the, to the left at a 45-degree angle. It was very disorienting. Mm. He's 85 years old. And he says, this could be my last crusade. And I, and I say to him, Myron, you're, you know, you're either a fool or a hero. And his response is, I think this case is going to make me live five years longer. So, so Myron, is, that's where he gets his adrenaline from. Yes. And of course, the tragedy is it, it doesn't make Myron live five years longer. Right. And, and, and Cal gets that. I guess you hear a rumor in prison, and then you yeah. you call me, and and uh, oh, I have yeah. to confirm it for Cal. And you know, mm-hmm. Cal is a extremely strong, mentally disciplined, emotionally disciplined mm-hmm. person. And and by the way, physically, he can do a, a hundred push-ups without stopping. So you know, he's been in prison twenty years. He knows his way around mm-hmm. physical challenges, emotional challenges, and. I confirm that Myron's dead, and 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 you know, for Cal, and I mean, imagine this is the guy, his savior, his savior now has has died, has passed, and yeah. that was like the most crushing blow ever that I ever felt, because I literally felt comfortable with my life in Myron's hands. You know, I want you to understand, I literally felt like that. I never felt like that with nobody. You understand? So when I lost him, it's like. I didn't know where to go after that. Like, I finally got the person that was the best of the best, that I, I loved him outside of him being my lawyer. You understand? I loved him as a person. And when I lost him, I just didn't know how to take that, you know, because it was like I just came just so far. And to be able to get the guy to believe in me, you know, it was just, I, I, I just, I couldn't help it. I just broke down and I was in the yard and that that really broke me down. And you and broke down on the phone with me. You called me back and, and actually I'd yeah. never heard that kind of emotion. Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't speak. Exteriorly, a person is not going to be able to read my emotions and my feelings because in jail I felt like I couldn't show no weakness. That's how it was in prison. If you show, like, they, people in prison, there's there a lot of predators in there. And if they sense any type of fear, that's when they're coming for you. That's just how it is. It's no other way. It's a savage life in prison. I love this guy, Myron Beldock, so much that I couldn't help but to break down. You understand? And I was in the yard with hundreds of men. You understand? And that would be the last place that I would want to break down. Because here... I am with all of the wolves and stuff like that. And I'm in the middle of that and I'm breaking down. So I was overcome by emotions when I lost my and, and actually, I remember you, you shouted over your shoulder. I just had a loss in the family. I had a loss in the family so that nobody would you think know, that you exactly, were soft. exactly, yeah. Also, Myron is the one that gave me the tenacity and the fortitude in order to push on. When I took you to the incident when Myron was working on my case at 8 p.m., and I started to read up on everything about Myron, you know, Myron was a guy that just didn't give up, period, you know? And I put his pictures up in uh, like a mural of Myron in, in, in the cell that I was in, and his spirit just came to me like, you got to keep pushing. Don't give up. Be a fighter. And Myron actually fought for my life while he was fighting for his own. So I wasn't going to get in a situation, okay, now I lost my top guy and just lay down and just sit. Because that's something that I felt that he would never do. So he kind of like put the tenacity in, in me to just continue to fight. Cal, can you just take us through how you were able to get your conviction reversed? Um. When I went to the supply my um second four forty and they entertained the evidence that substantiated that Dwight Robinson actually committed a crime with the Clark sisters. Just to expand briefly, it's a dramatic moment, and Cal had all, always said, you know, there were a lot of people there that night, the night of the shooting, and the scene had never been canvassed. Well, you know, the cops did go door to door and they knock on the door of the Clark sisters, Kimberlia 
and Nakia Clark, and they don't want to get involved. These are the two eyewitnesses to the crime, to the murder. But the older sister says, no, we heard shots. That's it. And that's what's in the police report. And why? Well, years later, I asked them. They didn't want to. It was a, a block full of drugs and murder. They're not going to come forward. Absolutely. But two decades later, through a series of circumstances, they resurfaced. They're in North Carolina. And now they find out that Cal was convicted. They didn't know that. They had moved away like a year or so after the murders. They find out, and they're kind of heartbroken. And frankly, the younger one, who was the one on the street 20 feet away, she's, she feels guilty. She feels guilty that she hasn't come forward and that this man, Calvin Buari, is in prison for something she knows he didn't do. So there's this dramatic moment when they walk into court, and particularly the younger one walks into court. And I remember the assistant prosecutor <laughs> tried to pick her apart and rattle her. Okay, it's the DA's job. And she is fiery. She's got this nickname, Evelina, because <laughs> when she gets challenged and pushed, there's this kind of fierce character that lives inside of her that yeah. comes out on the stand. Yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> and there's this moment, because we have the whole courtroom mic'd, and we have a mic right up near the witness stand. And, and you can't hear it in the courtroom, but we picked up where the, the assistant district attorney is really prodding her at, and under her breath evilina says that bitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then she returns fire and yeah. you know she doesn't give right and she says you know i saw who did it and it wasn't calvin buari there you go yeah and i wanted to expand on that too and that, you know that was so grateful for me too because I always knew that after my first initial 440, when the witnesses that actually came back who lied that were criminals, you know, I knew what type of games that these prosecutors play with the detectives, and I was always adamant on Steve, listen, I want these witnesses this time to have attorneys. Like, I was not going to allow what happened to me previously happen to me again. But it was it was overwhelming the, the personality and the spirit of this witness because that is the very type of witness that I needed to stand up against these type of tactics, you understand? And I just want to say too, man, when you, when you believe in something, stand for it. If you feel something is wrong, stand for it. And, and, and I'm happy that she stood. She stood up and she stood firm. Yeah, you know? and the cops did go to her. She was, unfortunately, yeah. she was in a, a shelter for abused women. The cops showed up, and that caused a lot of problems in her in her life. But, you know, Cal was also fortunate. He got a, another attorney warrior, a guy named Oscar Michelin, oh, yeah. who really, in that courtroom, Absolutely. I think, helped her tell her story and beat back the, the assistant DA when she tried to replay the 1990s and say, mm -hmm. Cal's a bad dude. He was a drug dealer who strolled around in mink coats, but... You know, it, it was true. That's not what he was on trial for. Right. He wasn't on trial for being a wealthy right. drug dealer. And and it was Michelin who pointed it out, and Nikki who gets on the on the stand and fires back. Who is the real killer? Who is the person who did the crime for which Cal served in time? Right. The tactics were utilized on Nikia and Kimberly Clark. She was in the shelter at the time, and when you're in the shelter, you need some place to stay. They went there and made it seem as though she was being looked into for a double homicide. You know what I'm saying? And these are the tactics that these guys employ to make, you know, life hell for a person that just want to feel the truth. You understand? And she got kicked out of the shelter. She got into an abusive relationship after I... But like I said, I was so proud to hear the personality that she stood up because normally with you know average people they're not going to want to be bothered period they're going to care more about their personal situation than wanting to help somebody else that you know okay i want to help them but i don't want to go through the headaches that i'm going through in my personal life let me leave that alone that's what the, the person doing and i'm i'm so proud that this woman stood up yeah i mean what's the question you hear today What's the upside for me? Well, there's no upside for her, but only downside. She, she stood up. Yeah. We end up 2017, 
in Bronx State Supreme Court. Yes. And that's the day you had been waiting for right. since the early 90s. Absolutely. And, and tell me about that. Can you take us back to that day? When the judge vacated the conviction, I had Myron picture in front of me. I had an actual innocent magazine that came out on time. And before that, Dwight Robinson was supposed to come in. They couldn't produce Dwight Robinson. And then when I went back to court, I just kept my eyes and myself fixated on in God we trust. And like I said, I'm a firm believer in God. So that's my number one attorney. And I believed that the right thing was going to be done. And actually, that's what happened. And that moment. So it was Judge Eugene Oliver Jr. Yes. And we're talking about state Supreme Court. I mean, this is yes. a this is a big deal, right? I yes, mean, it is. and how did that feel after decades of, of fighting and, and trying to get people to listen to have a man in that position vacate your conviction? Um, it didn't really hit me at first. I think when I went back to the bullpen. Then it really, really, like, really just started to sink in, like, I, I, I made it, you know, I made it. I'm going home. But, um, yeah, I'm going home, and I got hit with another hurdle. <laughs> I was, um, I had to go back to the facility that I was in and stay for the weekend, and those two days were the longest two days than the 22 years that I did in prison because I didn't sleep, and it was just elated. I, I really felt kind of nervous because you know you get a lot of hateration in prison and I was kind of surprised that the people actually were more happy than upset yeah so then I got the day where I came home which was May 8th which is tomorrow that's my second birthday my rebirth day and it was surreal I'm still looking at it and the nice day that we had a couple of days ago, I, I stayed out till I think four in the morning, just enjoying the breeze. And when I first came home, my goal wasn't just to come home. My goal was to come home and also build a legitimate entrepreneurial life for myself. So I had goals outside of just coming home. You understand? So even to this day, I'm still enjoying the little things and it's just still hit me because I ain't give myself a chance to breathe you know no and let's talk about that because 364 days as of the recording this podcast as we're sitting here now you haven't even been out a year and what you've got going on is going to make a lot of people feel like wow this is crazy I mean you've got multiple businesses that you started right yes I have a a van company that goes to prisons it's the number one van company by the way you know in (laughs) New York State I had started a new concept that I felt like when I was in prison a lot of my family members came to visit me and a lot of the van service they had the old janky vans and they wasn't clean and they were decrepit and you know, regardless of what their family members wanted to see, their loved ones that were incarcerated. So they dealt with it. And I felt like our family members deserved the same quality service that a regular civilian to get out in the street. So I started the concept of the Uber-like prison visit service. It's called Riders Van Service. It's spelled R Y D. E-R-Z, Van Service, and my number is 845-204-5930. And you service how many prisons in New York State? I service the downstate area right now. I'm serving 10 facilities. I'm going to downstate, Sing Sing, Shawanga, Sullivan, Walkill, Woodburn, Greenhaven. What else? The majorities of the facilities that are close to New York at the present time. I'm moving out further. We're supposed to be getting a bigger bus to go to Elmira, Comstock, Auburn, and the further facilities up. I'm in the process of doing that as I speak. And things are picking up. We're doing it with the van service. 
for the prisons to show, you know, how important implementing family ties are because they had done statistics that shows that individuals, when they're incarcerated and their loved ones check for them, they have a lower rate of recidivism when they come home. Of course. And I also plan to have a van go to the female facility and beacon, I think that is, for free. And I want to be able to give back to the female facilities because I feel like they don't get as much visits as the males do. And they have kids and stuff like that. So things are probably much harder. And I want to be able to put it in rotation where is that I could go through the whole facility, female facility, and give each one of them female females a visit but i want to find a social worker that's an intermediary just in case they need somebody to transport their kids to be able to go see their loved ones because i know that may be a barrier as well because of the age of the child and stuff like that but that's another way that i plan to give back so you got the service which is uh it's great there you are doing good while you're doing good and, and really making life better for those people who are able to now visit their loved ones that wouldn't be able to otherwise. And Definitely. and we know what a difference that makes to people on the inside. I think that one of the main reasons that I wanted to do that business is because I never wanted to allow myself to forget about where I came from. And by not forgetting, that will constantly keep me away from doing anything that will put me back in that place. So I want to constantly be reminded of that. And that's that's how I do it. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I think your future looks really bright. I mean, you are obviously a very smart and capable and entrepreneurial guy. And, you know, reapplying your skills in the way that you are is extremely admirable. And I know you're going to be a big success. And I mean, I'm looking forward to watching you. I know when we were speaking earlier, we were talking about some innocent people that you left behind. And I want to try to bring attention to those cases. And it's entirely possible that by highlighting these innocent people that you left behind that you care so much about, uh, we may be able to affect some change in their cases. So do you want to just talk about that briefly? I'll start off with some of the brothers that I know about case that I just left in Green Haven that we were actually working on our cases together. That's why I'm so much familiar with their facts. Um, You got a guy named Nelson Cruz that's currently in Greenhaven who was actually innocent. They did a New York Times article on him. He was actually caught up in the Louis Garcella situation, and he just recently got denied on his 440. And I, I, I believe in his innocence. There's another guy named Paul Clark that actually has almost 40 years in that was arrested by the mafia cops. So Paul Clark is one. He's currently at Greenhaven facility. And, you know, you have another young brother that I met named Kyrie Fry, who's also at Greenhaven, and Anthony Reed. But just recently, me and Meek Mills was in correspondence with each other, and he just sent me the information of a person that he was incarcerated with in Chester at the time. This brother has in 26 years in prison. And the only reason that he's currently there, his name is Eric Riddick. You can look up Eric Riddick. He's in Pennsylvania in Chester, PA, in in a penitentiary. And this brother is actually innocent. And the only reason he's still incarcerated is because of procedural situation, whereas that you have to have evidence in at a certain time. And if you don't have actual innocent evidence, Evidence, by the way, you know, he has evidence that proves his innocence and he has expert evidence that proves his innocence. It's just appalling that he's still in prison after 26 years and this brother needs to be free. So we will post the names of all those individuals that Cal just highlighted on the website, get involved and maybe we can together help some of these people get justice. So we have a tradition here on wrongful conviction, Mm -hmm. which is that at the end of the show, I like to turn the microphone over to you. I do what I don't do very well, which is that I stop talking and, <laughs> and just let you share any final thoughts that you have. Yes. And, and Steve, I'm going to start with you so that we can have Cal be our cleanup hitter here. So, uh, so Steve Fishman, uh, any final thoughts? Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's an incredibly important issue, and I spent a lot of time on it, actually, sometimes 
bit against my will, but you know, Cal being relentless would never. <laughs> yeah. I could I could never say no, even if I wasn't always saying yes. But <laughs> Empire on Blood is was really a work of uh, of passion, and it tells Cal's story. And I I I think what you get from it that you don't often get is you you get the the thinking and the thoughts and the feelings of the prosecutor of of Dwight Robinson who. <laughs> not convicted, but stands accused by eyewitness of, his, of having done this murder, of the detective who talked Dwight Robinson out of his confession. So you really end up with a sense of the criminal justice system. And, and I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, yeah, I kind of took a journey with Cal, and sometimes I'm given some credit for having pushed his case forward. But you know, really, all credit to Cal. I, I, I just think um, the kind of discipline and persistence in the face of enormous disappointment that would have not only disheartened people, but I think broken uh, most people. It, it, I couldn't have persisted. I, I mean, that kind of instinct and ability is very, very rare, whether you're talking to people on the outside or people on the inside. So, you know, all credit to Cal for realizing his, the beginning of his future. And now over to you, Calvin Buari, what do you got for us? I mean, I want to thank Steve for saying that because that means a lot to me because he didn't have to get involved with my case. But because of my diligence and I think that you know he just still he wanted to do the right thing and it's good that we have people like that whether you're a stranger or a friend or not it's just that I I feel like people are waking up and they want the right things to be done I think that my last words is going to be like what Meek Mill said it's all about justice reform so these type of things don't happen to other individuals I hope that I'm an example to the people that these things do occur and we just have to do something so they won't reoccur again that's basically what I have to say well now I just want to thank the audience for tuning in and listening this has been an amazing journey and thanks again to Steve Fishman and Cal Buari for being a part of the show. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.